Every creator finds their own unique way to be creative. We're here to celebrate and learn from some of the very best. Welcome to Michael's Craftivity Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Michael's Craftivity Podcast, where we're exploring the infinite ways creativity can be applied to life. I'm Anna White, your host. I'm the Vice President of Communications at Michael's. And today we're going to be talking with a Miami-based art advisor named Michelle Azut about the fascinating world of pairing collectors with works of art in a perfect match. Michelle was born in Puerto Rico and she studied art history at Miami University. After school, she worked her way up from a gallery assistant to roles in museums, including the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford and the Guggenheim in New York City. She's also a mother of three young kids, and I'm excited to explore her story as an art expert and a business owner and a working mom. Please join me in welcoming Michelle to the podcast. Michelle, hi, good morning. Thank you for being here today. Anna, it's so good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you too. So we, we've known each other for several years now, but um, you know, with COVID and the pandemic and moves to different coasts, uh, we haven't seen each other for a long time. So it's really special to connect now and um, appreciate having you on Michael's Craftivity podcast. Definitely. I'm so excited to be here. I wanted to start just hearing a bit about you, just if you wanted to introduce yourself and just kind of say what you do and maybe explain a bit what your role entails. Absolutely. So my name is Michelle Azut. I'm living in Miami and I'm an art advisor. Um, And the way I describe that is I'm, I'm a bit of a matchmaker. So I help people find works of art that speak to them. I've worked in museums. I've worked in galleries. I worked at a startup before I got to this point. And I have found that for a lot of people, art in general and buying art especially can be intimidating. And so what I've done is I've facilitated that process and now I work with private clients. I consider it like the best job in the world. I work with them, helping them buy art for their houses. Cool, cool, okay. I wanna get more into both the people, your clients, but also the artists that you're helping discover and identify and that whole process, because that feels like a very creative process in and of itself. So tell us a bit about where you were born. I know you were born in Puerto Rico and your childhood and the role that art played in your youth. Yeah, so I was born in Puerto Rico and it's so interesting because I think from a young age, my parents are not artists. They were both working in other fields, but there was certainly a value on the creative process. My father had some artist friends. So I remember going to their studios in Puerto Rico and seeing what they were working on and also being invited to participate in that process. What kind of art were they making? I remember specifically going to like a ceramicist, a sculptor studio. And I remember being given a chunk of clay while my father would be chatting with his friend, the artist. And I think that those childhood experiences really shape you into who you are. And as I work with artists today, inevitably it comes up some teacher, some sort of um, introduction as a kid to materials and to art making influenced their practice and what they do today. So there was certainly as a kid, there was an emphasis on on making art, on visiting museums and on having exposure to that. You as well, right, Anna? Yeah. So my mom had a small shop, like a gallery, and it started as a bookstore, but then it was a it called the Cozy Corner, and it was a shop that had local artisans' handmade goods, so quilts, pottery, blown glass, and then also books, and a lot of books around the Appalachian region. So I do remember one of my most vivid early memories going to the fabric store in our town, buying like all different types of red fabrics and taking them to these two sisters who quilted way up in a holler and taking all the fabric to their home. And my mom asked them to make a quilt. She would commission quilts and then she would sell them, you know, around the holidays or whatever. So I too, they never did give me a needle and thread and say, here, help us. But (laughs) they did, they did welcome us into their home. So that feeling is really, it sticks with you for sure. So did, did your mom, what, what did your mom do when you were growing up? So my mom was a working mom. My parents were divorced and she didn't really have art. She wasn't an art collector. 
um, and she wasn't bringing me to artist studios. But I'll tell you, we would we would go to Michael's on the weekend, and that was our like that was our treat. We would have a budget, and I I specifically remember going there at the time we were living in Orlando, Florida. And going to buy materials and that would be like our weekend activity. And that's something that I still do with my kids, like on a rainy Sunday. We'll go to Michael's. I live now in Miami. So we go to the one in Aventura, Florida, and we give them a budget and we're like, this is what you have. And then we bring the kids home with their materials. And that's like our, you know, Sunday afternoon capping off the weekend plan. Oh, it's a great, great way to spend your time. Yeah. yeah, especially. And would your mom craft with you and you all when you got your stuff home or did she more observe? Um, we were really independent. I think that's something that I admire about the way she raised us. My brother and I was kind of like, I'm doing this. <laughs> now you have your time to do that. Everything from schoolwork to art making and things like that. So I, you know, I, I like that style. The opposite of the helicopter parenting, which we hear about a lot today. Exactly. Exactly. I think there's something to be said for that for sure. So then did you study art in school, like at like elementary or middle? Were you at schools where art was a big focus? Um, we had some art. I think that as I got older, I started, you know, the academics and other things. I got into like actually journalism in my high school. So I, I started making less, but definitely in terms of art history, I started looking more. And that's something that stayed with me through college. I studied art history and I would visit museums. I just always felt really comfortable there. It's this thing, actually, um, there's this book, The Mixed Up Files of Basil E. Frankweller. It's this book that I read as a child, which is basically these two kids end up sleeping at the Met. And it's about all of their adventures. I read that as a kid. And when I've come across different professionals who work in museums, they mention that that book also had had an influence on them. So it's interesting how these childhood moments and influences definitely stay with you. So I studied art history. And um, when I graduated college, I was like, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> right. How did you even find that as a field, though? I would love to talk to you about like access in art. And it sounds like you had the experience of going to a museum at you know some points in your youth before you got to college to even know that was a thing. And But I still think there's a lot of people, unfortunately, who don't get to go to museums or maybe don't think it's the place for them. A hundred percent. I kind of like stumbled across it as a class. And then I really loved it. And I really loved looking at these objects and learning about history through these makers and how they had seen different things happening in the world, really from prehistoric times, you know, um, and the human beings need to make something that described their experience in the world. In terms of a career, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I didn't think it through. So it was the type of thing where I graduated with that degree. And then it was like, okay, let's start doing research of what are the fields that one could apply this degree to. So um, I was lucky to have a professor in college who, in terms of access that we're talking about, she was the one of the people who guided me and said, oh, you know, there's these internships or you might consider these different options. She had recommended like an internship program in New York, actually, but it was unpaid. And my parents were like, we're not going to bankroll this. So you've got to find another way. Because that was really what I wanted. I wanted to work at an art museum from the get-go. I ended up having a... A different path there, which was I started to work at a startup in New York. They were early on and trying to make like a platform for art that would recommend art to people. And then from there, I transitioned to a gallery. And then finally, I was able to do one of these internships, which then got me into a museum job. So I worked at the Guggenheim for a long time. And that was how I came to that. How did that startup do? Is it still around or did it not... Um, <laughs> it kind of fizzled out. Uh, it's around, but yeah, it, it didn't really, it never ended up accomplishing fully what they intended. I lived in Silicon Valley for a while, so it's always really interesting to see what people are coming up with. I just met a Stanford grad the other day um, who has since relocated to South Florida, and he seems to be working on something really exciting too, which is like an app that has ideas around that and ideas around community. 
So people connecting around making art and seeing art, because it's all about art and people, Anna. That's my big thing. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's not just an app. I love the idea of community. I mean, especially after the last few years where people felt so isolated and weren't able to see people they loved as easily. And seems like that would be one that could have some legs. I'd love to keep in touch on it. So what what was your role at the Guggenheim? Tell us about that. And tell us about the Guggenheim. Definitely. So the Guggenheim is this really large, white, round building um, in New York City. It's on Fifth Avenue. Um, It's around 60 years old. I want to say 1959 was when it was built. And basically, it's, it's this really round building with all of these levels. And what they say about the Guggenheim that's really interesting is that it's one of the hardest places inside to hang art in because you have all of these round ramps. When you think about like a painting, a rectangular painting or a square painting, you're thinking about a gallery wall, which is like flat, and that's the ideal place to hang it. And yet these walls all move at, at, at angles. They say when it comes to the Guggenheim, the the top artwork in the Guggenheim's collection is the building itself. I highly recommend it to whoever is stopping by um, New York. In fact, it used to be before COVID that you could go into the bottom, which is called the rotunda of the Guggenheim for free. So you don't even have to pay to walk in and, and go and look up and see all of these ramps. And what's cool is that you can stand on one level and look down and and watch people seeing and looking at other works of art. Um, So at the Guggenheim, I worked in the education department, uh, a department called specifically Learning Through Art. And that program was launched right at the beginning of the launch of the Guggenheim Museum. It was really interesting when you think about how back then they were already thinking about this, but they were noticing how, you know, Public schools didn't have enough funding to have art at school. So they were bringing in artists to public schools to teach kids and collaborate with the teachers on curriculum so that they could experience and learn about things like science and language arts, but through an art making perspective. So I worked in that program for many years. It was really awesome. I loved it. I collaborated with a lot of incredible teaching artists who are artists who have their art practice and their art making career, but they also teach. Um, They're passionate about education. So at the end of these, they were called artist residencies. The teaching artists would go for a number of months and spend time and get to know these kids. The kids would also come to the museum. And at the end, we would have a museum show of their art. And it was really powerful because talking about access, this program was really dedicated to serving Title I public schools, which are schools that, you know, it, it was in underserved communities. So these kids were being exposed to making art, to artists, to the art world. And then they were being invited to come to the museum and they were being encouraged to bring their families as well. And so sometimes this became an entry point where a kid would bring their parent and say, come look at this artwork that I made or come I heard about this. I've been to this museum. Let me guide you. And that was really powerful to see is how when a kid has a positive experience, the kid can then become the guide and the docent for their family in an art museum. So I think that's a really interesting idea when it comes to access and communities and making sure that there's, you know, equal access to going to see museums. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Sounds like it just takes one adult in your life to help turn you on to art. It also takes like one child in your family to have that experience then to maybe even shift generational perceptions around museums and the fact that it's for certain kinds of people and not for other people. Were you at the Guggenheim when we did this YouTube play? I was there. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay. I worked on that. Yeah. I I led the (laughs) communications for that. What we did just for our listener is we basically made a call to find the 15 best short pieces of video art. They had to be under 15 minutes and they were videos that were really wild, like video art installations. We actually had some of them running on the outside of the Guggenheim. So we projected the films And that was, there's a lot of news around that because it was just such a cool concept. Because, yeah, this big, white, kind of round building, and we projected the videos, and it was wild. And people in New York loved it, but it also got, like, a lot of national attention. And I think it was crowdsourced, so people got to vote 
um, people submitted their videos and then, and everyone on YouTube got to vote for who they thought should be in the Guggenheim. I remember we took this group of like 25 people around New York for a few days. That's so awesome. I think that was around the time of, I want to say like 2009, when they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Guggenheim. I think it was like around that time. It would have been just after that. It would have been the next, because I okay. started, I was there in 2010. Maybe that was the full 50th. If it started, you know, in 50. Nine, then it was, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, it would have been the full. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think they celebrated for a whole year. But yeah, that's so awesome. So, okay. So then, so then you left the Guggenheim and you moved out here to California and you worked at the Cantor Art Museum at Stanford? Yes, yes. Um, I moved out to Palo Alto, California. And then, yeah, I had the opportunity to work at the Cantor Art Center, which is a university art museum at Stanford that was founded also at the same time as the university was. So it was really important to the founders of Stanford University um, to also have an art museum. Their son, actually, the founders the founders of Stanford, their son was an art, an art collector. He passed away really young. So that's why they made the university and they also made the museum to kind of honor his memory and his passions. So this idea of object-based learning was something that the founders of Stanford were thinking of from the beginning. So at the Cantor, I worked with a lot of contemporary artists. I was also in the education department. And again, thinking about this idea of people and art, it was all about how do we engage with the community, um, the students at Stanford, but also people in Palo Alto that are looking to connect with with artists, with um, art making and things like that. So we brought a lot of really incredible artists. I don't know if, Anna, did you ever come to any of the public programs that we did, any of the workshops? I remember you telling me about the Sunday, the family Sunday. It was like the yes. second and fourth Sunday or something. And we yes. and we have we have gone to that. And we actually just went recently now that I don't know how long it's been reopened. But um, we went back with the kids and we saw the Stanford founder's son's collections. He has these like old, they're like old guns and all this stuff that my son was very into. It was like Indiana Jones style, like this huge case. So we just were there maybe a month and a half ago. What were some of these public programs that you organized? Um, so I love that program that you're mentioning, Second Sunday, which is, you know, that the Cantor Art Center is actually free always. And that program that Anna's mentioning, Second Sunday, is free. And basically you get to go with your family and make art. And I think that those programs are so powerful also as a tool of bringing in the whole family. I'm really happy they're doing them after COVID because I know that they moved virtual for for a while. But in terms of the programs that I was focusing on, We were bringing different artists to campus um, and they would do either a lecture or a workshop. Sometimes we were doing panel discussions. So, for example, we brought this artist, um, Ellen Atsui, who has a really cool sculpture at the it, it was in the lobby of the Cantor. I don't know if it's still there. And he and his studio, they actually take these um, bottle caps and they 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 join them together to make like a tapestry. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, and he's um, he's really incredible. Uh, he's from Ghana, and he's been working most of his career in Nigeria. And he creates these incredible tapestries out of discarded bottle cups. Like the metal little tabs? Yes. Yes, okay, I remember seeing this, yeah. Exactly. So the Cantor has one of his sculptures um, there in the, in the African... Uh, galleries, and we brought him in to do a, a lecture on his work. And I think that those moments where people can understand more about why an artist is making what they're making, where are they from, what kind of influences have they had, I think that that's kind of like the key to access in the art world and something that I'm still very passionate about. It was really cool because I got to meet a lot of really cool, really interesting contemporary artists. It was super fun. So was part of your role finding someone like him? Like, and how, how, does, how does a museum at Stanford connect with a Ghanaian artist halfway around the world? Yeah. You know what? We were always, as an, as an education department, um, It was very collaborative, of course, and we were also in close contact with the curatorial department. So the curatorial department, what that means is that certain people are in charge of thinking about what artworks they're going to show, what exhibitions they're going to create. 
Um, so sometimes they're pulling objects from the collection, sometimes they're borrowing objects, but basically when you go into an art museum, what you see has been thought out uh, very much by a team of people who have chosen what to display. So as an education team, we were in close communication with the curatorial team to see what types of topics and what types of artists would make the most sense to bring to campus. I actually have another example of an artist that we brought, which could be interesting. We also did a show uh, of an artist named Nina Kachadorian, and she was actually an artist that she she grew up on Stanford campus um, and now, you know, has gotten a lot more attention as an artist. And we brought her to campus and we did a number of different programs. So we did like a lecture, but we also did this silent disco party. And she was there and the students came and it was super, super fun. So I think it's really interesting to find different ways that people can connect to works of art. Some people are seeing it on the wall. Some people come and they sketch in the gallery, which is allowed. Um, and then some people want more of the academic side. So they want to sit and hear the artists speak about, about their art. But, you know, not, not one has to be better than the other. But it's, it's important to offer those options. Well, too, when you think about these museums that have this incredible space, you know, like real estate, they have these beautiful spaces. And I just love the idea of like the lights going down in the Cantor Center and some disco balls going, everybody put their headphones and doing, you know, dancing around at night. Like that sounds really fun. And what a great way to get college students to come over to the museum. You know, if you're like, oh, we're having a party, um, a silent disco party. What was her art? What kind of art does she create? She is actually really amazing. She has many different parts to her practice, but one of them is, for example, she takes these photographs while she's traveling on planes um, and she challenges herself to only take them with the items that she finds there. So she doesn't like pre-pack things. And it's really amazing because you would never think that she's taking that from the seat of her flight. Um, and then she also has this series where she goes into an airplane bathroom and she wraps her head kind of like with her scarf or whatever she finds. And she takes these like self-portraits of herself. What a way to entertain yourself. She also has one more. She has this one series which she's taking books, like the spines of books. Um, and she's creating poetry with the titles of um, the books. And I love that series. So In a photograph. Yeah, in a photograph. She's a really interesting artist. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. So, and then when did you decide to, you know, that maybe to take a change from the museum world and do something on your own? What was that journey like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think pandemic, you know, <laughs> yeah, everyone questioned everything, basically. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's still quite close. We're, we're, we're post pandemic, but it's still fresh, right? fresh on the mind, especially for us moms who, you know, are still dealing with the, the educational component of that for our younger kids. But we decided, my husband and I both grew up in Miami, Florida. And when the pandemic hit, you know, and the world kind of changed a lot in terms of um, where, where did you need to live for your job specifically. So we decided to move to Miami, something that felt really natural for us. We have both of our families here. Um, so we ended up in Miami and I started to think about what I was going to work on here and what made the most sense was to pursue, you know, education in a museum or gallery setting because that's what I've been doing for the last over, you know, more than a decade and um, this opportunity just kind of presented itself where I had friends and family asking me in a very casual way, um, you know, I'm moving or I need something for my Zoom background. Do you think you might be able to help me? And I have to credit my husband. He's a serial entrepreneur, very much, you know, Silicon Valley type who told me, you know, there's a business here. You need to pursue this. I, I had never started a business um, I had always worked in-house for other people. So I think there was an element of fear there. You know, can I do this? I, I've never, you know, I've never had to work in QuickBooks. I've never had to do social media. Can I, can I do this? Um, and he really supported me a lot, uh, encouraged me to move past that fear and launch, you know, this boutique business, this art advisory where I help people buy art. And that was like, ended up being... I started thinking about it like a year after the pandemic started and it took me a few months to get it together, but I launched it like spring of 2021. So why do you think that fear exists? Because that's something that 
we hear a lot with makers and crafters and artists that shop at Michael's. I would love to do X, this thing that I am happiest when I'm doing, like creating this art full time. Yeah. But then the risk, you know, financial obviously is one risk and just the self-doubt, you know, will I be able to do it? Will I fail? Like, what do you think was potentially holding you back at the beginning when you were thinking about it? I think when you, you know, in terms of starting a business, when you have a background doing something and you feel really comfortable, for example, I worked for really large organizations that gave me the resources I needed to do my job. So for example, um, at Stanford or at the Guggenheim, I was able to really focus on education and other people were doing all of those other parts. So when you feel like you don't know enough about these other areas, you you don't want to fail. So it, it could become a little bit paralyzing because you think, I don't know about those areas. But I think having cheerleaders and having people say, you know, you can do this. You just have to learn a little bit more about this. Or like for an artist, for example, if they're used to working in a certain media, um, which is an art word for, you know, a type of material, and maybe you want to venture out to a different type of material maybe there's a fear there. You don't know how to work with that material. But I think that's where community can play a big part. Because if you have your colleagues, um, fellow artists in your nearby studios, um, I find that there's usually a generosity of spirit between artists where they'll teach each other and learn from each other and they're able to support each other. You saw that a lot with NFTs, which it's not my focus. Um, But I think when artists were first starting to mint NFTs, you had a lot of like artist workshops of artists teaching each other how they could enter into this brand new type of art. We also see kind of two types of folks in terms of our maker community at Michael's. And some people really go deep in one area in like yarn art. And that is like definitely what they do. And they'll try all different types of yarns or threads or, you know, but they're not grabbing canvas and paintbrush and they're not going to also paint. But then you do have folks who want to sketch and then paint and then maybe sculpt. And I think it's such a trade-off because there's a lot of time and energy you have to invest in learning something new. But as we always tell our kids, like trying something new is how you learn and grow. And that's like great for your mind. But it's also kind of scary to take on something new, especially when I think you're very good at one thing. And you're like, well, I'm the expert in this. Why would I veer off here? And I think maybe for women, moms, there are a lot of other pressures on us. and We put a lot of other pressures on ourselves. And so I think there's a reason there are a lot of male entrepreneurs. And it's great to see you starting something on your own to help change that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think as moms, there's a whole nother element to, um, you know, what it is to be a working mom and what it is to take risks in your career. Um how you hang on to your career. Right, right, right. I was just talking with someone about that the other day, a young mom. Um, it, it's it's hard. It's hard. That's, you know, it's hard to to juggle both things. I call it like that. It, it's not a balancing act. It's it's completely imbalanced. My kids are getting like a little bit old, like they were babies and and now they're getting to the age where we can talk about what I do. Um, and I think it's cool. How old is your youngest? right now? Well, my youngest is four. So she's still, she's still little, but my boys are 10 and eight. So they're at an age now that we can talk more about what is work and what am I working on? And I try to involve them as is age appropriate. You know, I take them to museums, we talk about art, we talk about artists. And I think something that I try to share with them is that this idea of failure, this idea about how artists sometimes through chance or mistakes stumble upon their next great idea. So I think that idea of incorporating the way that artists think into your life, whether it's through art making, going to to Michael's and buying them materials to make with, or living with a great piece of art and thinking about how the artist made that. I think there's a lot to learn there for kids. Do any of your children show a propensity towards art one form or another or yes definitely my second son really enjoys it I think he 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 loves making art and I think for him it's a little bit it's like it's an outlet 
um, where he really can sit and just have that quiet time to himself to sketch or make something. And my little one, of course, she's four, so she everything is art all day. I keep it very open-ended. Like, I don't like to push those types of things on them. I feel like, you know, I offer the the opportunity. And so when my older one doesn't really want to make anything, that's totally fine, too. He's also a little bit more perfectionistic. Um, and those kids are harder. <laughs> He's gotten harder to kind of push to to make stuff. But the opportunity is still there. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I feel that. So I have an eight and a five-year-old and my eight-year-old loves to draw. And it, it, to the point though, today we had to send him with a sketchbook because oh, wow. he gets like a four-page math sheet that he's supposed to do in class with the other kids and he brings it home and not a question's been answered, but incredible like graphic novel <laughs> interactions are happening with characters on the page. And the teacher's like, we love his passion for art, but he still has to do some math, like if he's going to get through second grade. That is so interesting. That's super interesting. I mean, I met an artist recently from Brazil and he he described that so you might have you might have a little future artist in living in your house because he he described that that he would go to school and he wouldn't he wouldn't really complete the task and he was just you know making art all day so i feel for those kids because yes you you do need to get through the educational system but yeah that's really interesting that it sounds like he's he's so connected to that you know art making side of him from such a young age yeah, he really is. And and I think he's he is very good at it. He has other challenges, so that's one of the places where he gets the most positive feedback. But the teacher, his teacher now saying, it is clearly an outlet when he starts to feel stressed about looking at math problems, he just draws. Wow, that's so interesting. Um okay, Michelle, so tell me about the art advisory that you're running. Tell me about your company. So you you launched it, as you said, spring. I launched it. Yeah, I learned a lot as I um it was a learning process. So like I mentioned, I, I didn't have experience forming an LLC and dealing with lawyers and contracts and making a website. Uh, but I find that part of it really uh, rewarding. It's it's like that creative side of getting to do a bit of everything. Um, I send a monthly newsletter uh, to my clients that goes out and it has kind of like a roundup of what's happening in the art world with interesting works of art. So I get to do some writing there. But basically, it's kind of thrown through word of mouth. And I work with a lot of new collectors. They're not always young, but often they are. And it's really hard because a work of art can be, you know, the size of a paper of, of you know, a piece of paper. And this can cost $200 or this can cost $30,000. And there's a reason for that. It's nice to have someone that you can speak to to understand why and also to help you choose. So one of my philosophies is kind of mixing high and low. There might be some spaces that, you know, we want to spend more money on and then some spaces that we might be okay spending less. But basically, I, I am like an art concierge. So I come into their house, I measure the spaces, we talk a little bit about, you know, have they seen any art? Uh, I think the most important thing I would recommend to someone who wants to buy art is to look at as much art as you can. Um, you know, Instagram is a really powerful tool in the art world. So that's one option, but also just locally at galleries or at museums. You know, I think people don't often know that visiting a gallery is free. So we look at a lot of art before we buy anything to try to determine what is it that speaks to them. And a lot of times, you know, you should definitely buy what you love. Um, you hear that a lot. But also, you don't have to fall in love at first sight. So sometimes the best objects that you live with are things that maybe something caught your eye and it was interesting to you, but maybe there was something uncomfortable about it in the beginning. In living with that object, there might be something that makes you uncomfortable, but that same thing might allow the object to resonate with you over long periods of time because you're not getting bored of it. So it could be a process where you're constantly rediscovering on a daily basis what is it about that object that's making you look, that's making you wonder whether it's how the artist made it um, or what materials it's made from or where the artist is from. So those are things that I go through with my clients and that I, I help them. I, I help them through that process. Do people come to you and want to find a piece of art for one 
spot to begin. I would I would think that often people say, let's get one in the living room and then go from there, see how that goes, see how that feels. It varies. It varies. So I have some people that are coming to me for a specific spot in the house. And then I have some that are already coming and they know they want, you know, these three specific areas. And then I have some people that are like, we're moving. We own these pieces of art, but we really want to round out the collection. I'm working right now, for example, with someone who's really focused on Latin American art and they have a really beautiful collection. So they're not new collectors, but they have a lot of really established amazing artists and now they want to incorporate more emerging artists that have maybe been influenced by that older generation of artists so that's a really fun project that I'm working on right now but it varies sometimes people need one object sometimes they're looking for a few sometimes it's a whole house but it varies and it it makes it fun because every project is really different so then how do you find the artists? So, because I would think that one thing that you bring is, you know, you obviously have this kind of tr- slightly more traditional background working for these very established museums at an institution like Stanford, you know, established in the U.S. in terms of age. And then you also are young and very cool and live in Miami. And like, you probably have a finger on the pulse of like the up and coming emergent folks as well. So that seems like a nice intersection to be situated in. How do you find the new folks? What are you looking for? Like literally, how do you find this new artist in Brazil who drew during class? Literally, the artist in Brazil was introduced by a friend of mine. Okay. Um, Actually, a mom friend, if you want to laugh. A friend of mine in Miami, like from the playground. Um, Her brother's in the art world in Miami. And I told her, that I was in the art world, she connected us and he really focuses on street art, which is not my focus. Um, So I needed more of like a graffiti street art piece. um, And he's the one that put me in touch with the Brazilian artist. So I think that a lot of it does have to do with relationships. Like you mentioned, I've been in the art world for a long time. So there's some artists and galleries that I've known about for a really long time. I have those relationships. So that's really nice. Curators too. So I've worked with curators in all of my jobs. I'm still friendly with a lot of them. But on an actual, like, how do I find the artists? There's a few ways. So there's, I'll give these secret tips. <laughs> if you're looking to buy art um, and you're looking to make it affordable, there's a few There's a few ways. So usually different cities have artist studios. So you can look them up. Like in, in Palo Alto, for example, there's something called like the Coverly Artist Studio Program. Uh, here in Miami, there's there's a few. There's Fountainhead, there's Bakehouse, and there's these artist studios. Um, in San Francisco, it's Minnesota Street Studio Program. So that's like a really cool place to start to find artists that are in your community that you might be able to support. And they usually do open studios periodically, um, and you can walk around and see. And oftentimes you can buy art directly from these artists you know, the prices would range based on how established they are. But that's one really great way of getting to know the artists in your community. So these are like actual studio spaces, like rooms, the artists are creating their art there. And yes, they'll open them up once a month or so every once in a while, I've seen sign it's like open studios or yes, yes. Yeah, just even around here down in Carmel. And that is like a really good vibe because the whole idea is to have an informal moment to walk in to an artist studio, look around and maybe you're like, whoa, this is like really not for me. Or wow, this there's something really interesting here. And you get to talk to the artist, which is the best part about working in the art world is getting to meet and getting to know artists and getting to hear from them because... <laughs> Really, they're doing this because they really feel that this is what they need to be doing in the world because there's a lot of other careers, easier, get paid more money, but they just really feel they wake up every day and this is the calling that they have is to make these objects. So when you go to an open studio, something like that, you get the chance to speak directly with these artists. And often, I mean, if you can support Uh, what they're doing even better. So that's one way. Of course, there's galleries. I'm from Miami. I lived a long time in New York. And then I have the California, you know, I lived in the Bay Area. So there's certain galleries that I know well, that I follow them, that I see. Um, I'm thinking now of a gallery actually in Oakland, Johansson Projects. I love them. I think what they do is really interesting. They're always finding um, 
really innovative. Actually, this sculpture behind me is from them. I was thinking about the sculpture behind you. It's very cool. I was literally wondering where you, that's awesome. So this is, he's actually, um, he's an artist from Puerto Rico. He's based in Portland. His name is Ivan Carmona. And I was actually visiting when I was out in California, working with some of my clients. I stopped by their gallery looking for, <laughs> looking for art for my clients. This is like a hazard of the job. And then I left with this sculpture, <laughs> which I carried home in my carry-on. I was like, can I carry this in my carry-on? And yeah, um, I made it happen. But, um, you know, like a gallery like that, I respect very much their program, their curatorial vision. They're very into, I would say, education. Like, you know, they're opening up their gallery for their openings. They're bringing people in. Really interesting, diverse program. So I think that galleries are another way that people can can learn about art and can find ways to buy art. And how about, I, I do love your newsletter. Thank you. And that is actually how I kind of, thank you for putting on that list early on. I just thought it was so cool. And I do think the writing is very approachable. And I think it's got a beautiful look and feel, but hopefully for some of our listeners, um, we will be able to share the your website and, and people can see like the different types of art, but also like the way you talk about art and the way you talk about your kids. And, you know, it's just, it is very real and authentic and doesn't feel intimidating, which I think is great, even though some of the pieces are beautiful and probably quite expensive. There's a range. There's a range. There's a range. Good. High, low, high, low. <laughs> yes. But um, in one of your newsletters, you talked about different markets. And I actually was at a market this weekend. There was just one in San Mateo. There were two here in the Bay Area, right beside each other. And one was mm-hmm. um, called the Harvest Festival, which was really handmade crafts. And then beside it was an antique market, actually. Um, so I, I kind of hit both of those on Friday. And I was meeting with makers to talk also about Michael's and some of the stuff we have coming out um, next year, which was really interesting. And then I know some of the markets that you've talked about do feel to be probably bigger, higher end, more international. So do you also, are those something that people can go to? Like if someone happens to, yes, I don't know if there's a big one in Atlanta or somebody, someone happens to be, can, can you just buy a ticket to go to the ones that you're also talking about or how do those work? Yeah. So these are basically, um, their art, I mean, in your case, what you're talking about is like a maker's market, um, different places where people come together to sell different crafts that they've made. And in the world that I work in, in the contemporary art world, they're, they're art fairs. There's a calendar of art fairs that happen all around the world. Um, so you have Freeze in London, the Armory Show in New York. There's a great one in Dallas. That's where our headquarters is. So, oh, really? Fantastic! I love my dad. My dad lives in Dallas. He'll love this. Oh, good. Um, I love Dallas. My dad lives there, so they have an amazing one of my favorite art fairs, and they know this because well, people in Texas are just the sweetest. First of all, they're just so warm and so lovely. Oh, awesome! Um, and the food is awesome. <laughs> And Dallas, I think, has a big art. I mean, the culture and history of art in Dallas. You have the Kimball and... They do. Yes. Yes. It's Fort Worth. I guess Dallas and Fort Worth. Yeah. There's a lot of big art patrons in Dallas. And this art fair is really um, manageable, meaning, you know, now in a few weeks is Miami Art Week, which is led by Art Basel, Miami Beach. So you're talking hundreds of galleries. I mean, it's huge. It's in a convention center. Um, but the Dallas Art Fair is very walkable. It's it's not huge. Um, and they also have a range of prices. So um, the art fairs are basically bringing in galleries from all over the world. And the galleries are showing um, artworks by their artists. Yes, you can buy a ticket to go. I think it's hard to buy art at an art fair for a person with no experience ever buying a work of art. I think I wrote about that on one of my blogs. But basically, I think art fairs for a new entry collector is a great place to do visual research. So you can walk around and you can, yes, you can really see so much in a short period of time. You can see galleries from all over. But in terms of buying, it can feel very um, rushed. There's an energy, it's it's frenetic, but it's also, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen, there's a thing in the art world of like, opening night of these art fairs and like the stampede of collectors running in to so it's not like that anymore because a lot of the work it's intense a lot of the work is pre-sold um I think not everybody knows that so when it comes to art fairs 
a lot of work is circulated in advance a few weeks. In, so right now, for example, I'm reviewing PDFs of artwork that's going to be on display in a few weeks. So a lot of artwork is pre-sold. You don't see that stampede anymore. But again, it could be a little bit intimidating. But yeah, the art fairs are something that definitely are really interesting to go. By the way, there's also the affordable art fair, which as its name you know, connotes, is really very accessible prices. Is that in different cities or is that in one place? Yes, that takes place in different cities. Um, there's the affordable art fair and there's also art on paper. So um, works on paper, which, for example, photographs, drawings, prints like lithographs and woodblocks, those are usually less expensive than paintings. So that's another accessible entry point for people would be works on paper. And that's a great fair. It happens in New York. Um, it was in September. I, I think they, they do it in other locations as well. But art on paper is another really great art fair. Oh, thank you for the tips. That's great. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, tell me about an artist that you have met recently who just has an incredible story that you could share. I'll tell you about an artist. Um, I haven't met her recently, but she was someone that I met early on in my career. Um, her name is Fanny Sanin. So she's in her 80s now. She's a Colombian painter. She works with uh, geometric abstraction. So to describe it to people, you know, there's two main groups of art. There's figurative, like representational art that shows a person, a place or a thing. And then there's abstract art, which has lines, shapes, colors. You can't really tell if specifically it's meant to show you something. Um, so she works with geometric abstraction, which is really specific shapes that she paints. And she's been doing this for a really long time, like since the you know, 70s. She's someone that I met early on in my career, but she never really had the full recognition that I think a lot of women artists, you know, have, have dealt with that through the years, the balance of men in major museum collections, as opposed to women is, you know, there's many more men in museum collections than women. So I think um, her career has maybe been a part of that. But I'm really happy to share that, you know, she's getting a lot of attention recently. And that makes me feel really happy because, you know, I think there's so many women like her, women artists that haven't had the full recognition that they deserve that are slowly now, you know, coming to the forefront. So I think that, you know, she's not a young emerging artist, but she's an artist that's, you know, being looked at again and thinking about, you know, where is her place in art history? And she was doing this at a time where it must have been so hard for her to keep painting. Um, and yet she did, because that was what she had to do. So I'm happy to see someone like her getting more recognition. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I just did, I was in New York last week, week before last, and went to the Whitney and saw the Edward Hopper's New York exhibit. Yes. And I think what I was most interested in was Joe, his wife, who was his kind of muse and model. Yeah, so she she was an artist. She was an artist that didn't get recognition at all. There, there's a bunch of women like that, that even though I studied art history, only in recent years have I discovered that they were artists in their own right. So for example, Joseph Albers, who, you know, his wife, Annie Albers, she was a great artist in her own right. There's a bunch, uh, Sophie Tauber, Jean Arp's wife. There's a bunch of these women who were working alongside their husbands, but whose career wasn't really um, acknowledged in their lifetime. Oh, that's interesting. Michelle, there's your coffee table book. <laughs> yes, the, like Undiscovered Wives. Let's do it. Sure, I'll help you write it. That is interesting. So, okay, so, and then finally, uh, I am curious how... How and if you do find moments where you feel like you have some balance or at least some self-care, like how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> it's just laughable. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm the best person. I, uh, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question. You know what? I'll give you one. I'll tell you one thing. I try not to have guilt. And I think that as working women, mothers, you are constantly faced with guilt of, you know, if if you're at work, you're not doing X. Or when you're with your kid, you're not working on the thing you're supposed to be working on. And I really try as much as I can to 
push that guilt out of my mind because it just is really unproductive. It's it's a it's a juggling act. It's one of the reasons that we moved back to Miami was for the support system. My family lives here, my husband's family lives here. So in that sense, it's nice to be able to call on, you know, your mom or your mother-in-law or sister-in-law and say, uh, I got stuck in traffic at a work thing. Do you think you can pick one of them up from school or from basketball practice? I think that idea of like, you know, it takes a village. I really believe it takes a village. <laughs> also, I want to make a shout out to my mom. She was a working mom. And as I've worked through the years, I mean, New York, California, here in Miami, she has really leaned in to support my career. So when I go to art fairs, because I have to travel for work, like she'll come, she'll help me, she'll stay with the kids. And if it wasn't for that, I don't think I could have launched my business. So thank you, mom. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, women supporting women. You know, we have a lot of women who work on our team, both at the corporate office and our store teams. We obviously have a lot of women customers. And I'd like to thank your mom for taking you to Michael's all those years ago. I think that obviously had an impact on your love of art. hundred <laughs> percent. I, I really re uh, remember those moments quite vividly. I still remember the smell. I don't know. There's something about Michael's stores. They have like a little bit of like a cinnamon. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's like the candles or some scented objects in there, but I really vividly remember remember those trips, and I'm also thankful for them. Oh, well, Michelle, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've learned so much. I really want to go to an art fair with you. Um, we have to make that happen. Definitely. Thank you so much, Anna, um, for having me. And I have to say that through the years, you've always been super supportive. You are kind of a you know a role model when it comes to women supporting women i'm so happy to know you and um, to be in your orbit so yeah i hope to see some art with you soon oh i would love that i feel likewise thank you again my pleasure i want to say a huge thank you to michelle for joining us on the show today and for sharing her time and creativity and her very unique perspective with us and thank you, of course, our listeners for joining us here on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast. Please make sure to follow us for more creative conversations. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or a comment or share this with someone else in your life. We'll see you next time on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast.